You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Developments now in the ongoing vaping crisis as the CDC reports at least 18 deaths now connected to vaping-related illnesses. Lawmakers across the country weighing whether to put restrictions on it or ban it altogether. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Now this episode is part two of a three-part series exploring cannabis safety and harm reduction. If you haven't listened to the first part of the series, I really recommend stopping this episode and going back to listen to the series from the beginning. Now previously we explored some of the main chemicals that are found in cannabis and what their associated um, toxicity profiles are. We looked at the adverse health risks associated with cannabis and how cannabis can interact with medications. Today we're going to be focusing on a critical topic that has a huge impact on the safety of cannabis products, and that's cannabis contaminants. So far, everything we've explored about the health risk of cannabis have ignored a really critical element, and that's contaminants. You know, so far we've been assuming that if you're using cannabis, that that cannabis must be clean. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. The cannabis contaminants that we're looking at... Anthony Smith is a biochemist that has spent the last five years analyzing cannabis products for potency and purity in labs all across the United States and Canada. Contaminants we're looking for are pesticides, residual solvents, heavy metals, mycotoxins, and then also microbiological contaminants, E. coli and or STAC, which is uh, Shiga toxin E. coli, uh, salmonella, uh, aspergillus, a total mold count or total aerobic plate count, which would be like nonspecific bacteria. The most common contaminants that we find are definitely pesticides. I would say four or five years ago, it was like a rampant, rampant thing um, where, you know, at times in Oregon, some times of the year, we were seeing pesticide product failure rates at 20% or more. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think the industry got a little bit of a black eye, but honestly, those rates today in Oregon, um, also in California for pesticide fails are, you know, in the two to four percent wow. range it's, it's, it's really actually dry. fairly low and i mean back again back in the day i mean a lot of those pesticide fails were products that were you know consciously sprayed on the material mm -hmm. either they didn't know that those materials uh, were persistent in the product or didn't care or didn't consult the list of things um i, I don't know yeah but today mostly when we talk to clients that have pesticide fails it you know, it, it's uh, it's either a mistake or something that was overlooked or... Sometimes unlisted. A, an unlisted product or just kind of a lack of control, um, you know, uh, and, and not properly trained farm technician found something maybe in the farmhouse garage instead mm -hmm. of in the sort of validated growing area and, and used it by accident or yeah whatever. Um, sometimes agricultural overspray from... Um, either neighboring cannabis farms or, um, gosh, in Florida, uh, a lot of product is coming up with malathion. Mm. Um, 
but there's parts of Florida where helicopters fly over the uh, neighborhoods um, spraying malathion, you know, oh in gosh. the swampy areas. So yeah. if wow. you're not paying attention to that in your greenhouses. Jeez. <laughs> uh, Just sucking it in and blowing it over yeah, yep. everything. Before we continue, let's talk a little bit more about pesticides. Now, many pesticides are designed to disrupt the nervous systems or hormone signaling in insects. The effect this has is that it basically excites the insect so much that it becomes paralyzed and eventually dies. Now the problem is that this same effect can happen in humans if someone is exposed to enough of a certain pesticide for long enough periods of time. You might be thinking, what's the big deal about pesticides and cannabis specifically? Aren't we already exposed to pesticides through our food? Well, technically that's true, unfortunately. But the problem relates to the way in which cannabis is consumed. You see, when you eat something, and if it has pesticides in it, your liver goes to work to try to metabolize those products and get them excreted out of the body. And it helps keep you safe. It helps limit the amount of pesticides that actually reach your bloodstream and get distributed throughout your entire body. However, when you smoke something, you're bypassing that metabolic process. You're not allowing things to go through the normal route and get uh, go through what's called first-pass metabolism and allow the liver to break down some of those things before it reaches your blood. In your lungs, you've got these little sacs called alveoli that are basically the sites of gas and blood exchange. So when you breathe in oxygen, this is where the oxygen passes through the lungs and into the blood. Well, when you smoke cannabis and you inhale that cannabis smoke, if it has pesticides in it, those pesticides will actually pass through that barrier and reach your blood and then get distributed throughout your body without your liver ever having a chance to help you out. So that's really the main difference, why smoking things with pesticides in them is such a bigger problem than eating things that have pesticides in them. Additionally, some pesticides, like mycobutanil, which is a common fungicide often used by cannabis cultivators, can actually degrade into toxic compounds like hydrogen cyanide when they're heated. <coughs> it's also really important to point out that many pesticides, as well as mycotoxins, can become concentrated in cannabis extracts. The whole process of making a cannabis concentrate can elevate contaminants like pesticides as much as five to ten times the concentration that they were found in the cannabis flower that was used to make them. This means if you're consuming a cannabis concentrate, you're potentially being exposed to much greater doses of contaminants than if you were consuming the cannabis flower that was used to produce that concentrate. I also want to point out that it's not enough to simply test your cannabis flower for contaminants prior to making a concentrate it's totally possible for there to be very trace amounts of pesticides or other contaminants present on that cannabis flower that are not going to show up on any testing. But once you make that cannabis concentrate and those contaminants get concentrated, all of a sudden you'll start to see them on tests at dangerous levels. Now let's go back to our conversation with Dr. Smith. Uh, microbial oh. contaminants, um, at least on the Salmonella E. coli end, honestly, we don't really see any significant failure rates uh, with mm -hmm. modern, you know, shelf cannabis. But that stuff is all pretty clean. Those are contaminants generally come from manure or um, yeah. bad hand washing. And so um, 
in California, occasionally we do see some problems with that in manufactured or infused products mm -hmm. um, because they're, you know, I, I guess didn't wash their hands making the cupcakes Ugh. or whatever. <laughs> um, again, that's pretty yeah. low yeah, um, and not really a cannabis thing. Um, we do detect aspergillus. Um, um, you know, we use PCR or polymerase chain reaction as a, as a screening tool. Um, so this is a way to look for like the genetic signature of a bunch of different microbes um, rapidly um, in a reaction. And then if when we do get positive hits, um, those are always confirmed by direct culture plates. Mm -hmm. um, so aspergillus is still kind of a thing. Um, this is why a lot of states require uh, moisture uh, moisture content measurement and or water activity measurement. This is a means of benchmarking how dry your materials mm -hmm. are and that they're you're cured to a certain level. Um, so you don't have to worry about mold or uh, different right. types of fungi or bacteria growing out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, you know, while we're talking about mold and fungi, um, aspergillus and other dark colored molds produce their own sort of form of pesticides called mycotoxins. Um, there are a number of mycotoxins that are required to be tested for, again, in, not yet in Oregon, um, but I would, I would imagine we'll see that within the next year or two. Um, to the chemists, they look much like pesticides with respect to like their, you know, their, their chemistry and how you analyze them on a, on a mass spec. Um, you know, but California has a specific requirement for mycotoxin testing. And so um, I would say the failure rate for those are, you know, about similar to like the mold failure rate. Those are really this the signature of mold. Yeah. Um, but they are persistent where you probably would only find mold in cannabis flower. Um, just like pesticides, we do uh, occasionally detect mycotoxins in, in more finished products, in, in resins yeah. and infused products. Well, there, there's mycotoxins once produced are super, super stable. They're very heat tolerant. Yep. Um, even under high pressure, they seem to be able to survive yep. um, those processes. Um, and unlike most pesticides, like we know uh, mycotoxins are hepatotoxic and, right. and persistently or cumulatively um, you know they they cause cumulative liver damage and yeah. so like your lifetime uh, dose if you will um, matters uh, yeah a lot of pesticides uh, you certainly don't want a lot of them in your bloodstream right. unfortunately you actually do um, from food yeah but a lot of those are you know very well broken down um, by the liver mm -hmm. and, and and they're generally not that toxic yeah. uh, below a certain level. Um, that sounds funny to say, but still. Yeah, well, the dose uh, makes the poison, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, mycotoxins, not so much. Yeah, they 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 do cause liver damage cumulatively, and so it's uh, definitely not something that you want in your food. Yeah, and they're, um, they're pretty carcinogenic too, um, from what I understand. And um, it's something that uh, when Oregon was developing the rules, I was surprised... Um, that mycotoxins, um, there was discussion about it early on and then it kind of fell out. Um, but it was something that we did, you know, some work trying to look at that. And, you know, we were able to confirm like it's around for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's flowing around, you know, not super common, 
But, you know, just in the context of public health and safety, and especially with how popular extracts are getting, um, you know, just more and more in vape pens and dabbing and all this sort of thing, um, you know, I have some pretty serious concerns about exposure to mycotoxins as well as pesticides and everything. But pesticides seem to be one of the first contaminants that states catch on to that needs to be tested for. And so there's, you know, a lot more control over pesticides than there are mycotoxins. And it's so common for uh, producers to take uh, flour material that might be moldy or otherwise, you know, can't be sold as flour and to extract it and turn it into, um, you know, a concentrate and then sell that. So what about um, heavy metals and cannabis products? In like 2013 or 2014, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Raber uh, of, of the workshop uh, published some paper where they were finding heavy metals in the vapor stream of mm. low quality vape cartridges. Um, so we've been thinking about it for a while and, and encouraging vape pen manufacturers to, you know, when they buy these materials, get several different samples um, and bring handfuls of them to the lab and you know we'll wash them either with like acidic water or sometimes MCT oil see what might come through and a lot of them indeed do leach a, a, a lot uh, of metals and yeah. it's primarily lead yeah um, but also some mercury yeah um, we do see some arsenic fails at times um, in cannabis the story there was that had a manufacturer or a farm, an indoor place, um, and they were anticipating uh, doing metals test on their final stuff. And so they didn't really want to wait until the end and see. And so these guys were smart. Um, and when their, when their plants were fairly immature, just mm-hmm. at the start of the budding stage, like we um, went and collected a bunch of materials. Uh, so basically immature buds yeah. and they were loaded with arsenic. Oh, wow. Um, so that, you know, prompted a, a test of, of the soil and yep. the water and the media and everything that we could. And turns out um, at the end of that story, it was a bunch of nasty rock wool. Um, oh, wow. So it's, it was, you know. The I'd, initial growth medium. That, yeah. Uh, wow. That uh, was just off the charts mm-hmm. uh, with arsenic. The leaching of contaminants from cultivation, processing, or packaging equipment is an issue that people working in the natural products industry have had to think about for quite some time. However, some cannabis companies are still learning about best practices when it comes to these sorts of things, and this is ultimately putting consumers at risk. I spoke with Travis Simpson, an herbal scientist that spent the past several years working with hemp in the cannabis industry, and he shared some of his concerns regarding contaminants from manufacturing and packaging equipment. Chemical compatibility is an ongoing issue I see within um, conventional THC and hemp processing environments. Uh, A lot of manufacturers are utilizing equipment that has not been thoroughly validated and tested and can in some circumstances be utilizing solvents that um, might be um, denatured with other components in order to reduce costs in manufacturing. Mm. So one of the big areas that we see is, is ethanol manufacturers using things like heptane denatured alcohol and how that has an actual impact on some of the fluid transfer equipment used in the manufacturing process. Um, terpenes are one of the great chemical classes produced by the cannabis plant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we in the natural products world would refer to that whole mixture as just essential oils um, that can be derived from steam distillation, subcritical CO2 extraction, um, some very cold hydrocarbon extraction such as uh, propane based mm -hmm. extracts yield a, a very terpene rich product that um, unless handled with the appropriate chemically compatible material um, can cause considerable leaching that will bleed into the products without any test methods in place to identify those mm -hmm. uh, other than the organoleptic rubbery um, or acrid mm -hmm. um, smell that might come from some silicone products um, right. that are used for either in the world of uh, butane propane extraction um, the purging steps um, are an area where chemical compatibility can become a very um, considerable issue um, but the essential oil market um, some of these products can have as much as seven to ten percent um, essential oil by mass without ever being packaged in a method that takes into consideration the assault that might have on say a silicone gasket um, for a jar lid starting to um, encourage consumers to have compatibility conversations with their preferred manufacturer I think is a really good way to bring that topic up in a non-confrontational way but at least provide the questions to the manufacturer to enable them an opportunity to express how they're addressing compatibility within their production system. Mm -hmm. And those manufacturers that cannot provide forthcoming information on their compatibility strategies um, would be a red flag as a consumer choice. Yeah. One of the really important things to note regarding most of these contaminants, including things like pesticides, metals, and mycotoxins, and really particularly with metals and mycotoxins, is that you're not necessarily going to have an immediate reaction when you're exposed to these toxins. These things can build up in the body over time, and you may not exhibit any symptoms for a long time before the body finally reaches a tipping point, and then you're in trouble. So just because you've consumed a cannabis product and you didn't notice any adverse effects, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not being exposed to harmful contaminants. This is why it's really important to verify that a product's been tested for contaminants prior to using it, and don't just take someone's word for it when they say that it's been quote-unquote tested. What was it tested for? You need to ask really pointed questions. Was it tested for pesticides? Was it tested for metals? Was it tested for mycotoxins? You know, for instance, um, currently at the time of this recording, in the state of Oregon, where I am, um, metals and mycotoxins are not required to be tested for in cannabis products. However, in California, they are. So depending on where you are, when someone says that something's been tested, it can mean very, very different things, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that cannabis product is free from contaminants. So the takeaway from some of these discussions is pretty clear to me. Know the purity of your cannabis before consuming. But this is easier said than done. There are still many places in the U.S. and abroad that have not legalized cannabis or established strict testing requirements for cannabis. For users that are getting their cannabis from the black market, they're really left at the mercy of their supplier's quality. And unfortunately, this can sometimes lead to tragic consequences. We've got a public health crisis out there right now with um, additives in vape pens. Yeah. 
Dr. Russo is referring to a recent string of fatalities linked to lung infections or lung damage associated with vape pens. People are calling it a vape crisis. The latest tonight as the opioid epidemic hits Pennsylvania. Today, the state reported its first vaping-related death. Two more death. Indiana residents have died from severe lung injuries linked to vaping. A 17-year-old from New York has become the youngest person to reportedly die the from vaping. death linked to a lung injury because of vaping is being reported here in there Michigan. There are now 20 deaths that have been linked to vaping-related lung disease in the United States. According to the Mississippi Department of Health, there have been five cases of vaping-related lung disease in the state, and so far at now least one death. The Texas Health death. Department has confirmed a death in North Texas from lung injuries related to vaping. We have learned that a Bronx teen was the first New Yorker to die from a vaping-related illness. Yesterday, the CDC reported the number of cases in the U.S. has reached almost 1,300 in 49 States. Developments now in the ongoing vaping crisis. Lawmakers across the country weighing whether to put restrictions on it or ban it altogether. At the time of this recording, there have been 29 recorded deaths and over 1,300 reported cases of lung infections or damage linked to vape pens. And these reports are growing at a rapid rate. While the exact culprit responsible for these illnesses and deaths has not been yet identified, the CDC does not know the cause. There are all kinds of things circulating about what might have been the cause. Investigators suspect it has something to do with additives or contaminants. That actually has nothing to do with cannabis. Yeah. It has everything to, to do with additives that are toxic uh, that are put in these devices. Uh, and so it can happen with nicotine vape pens. It could happen with cannabis vape pens or whatever. Um, but... Uh, I, I'll put the finger on the government. Um, you wouldn't have this situation if we had uh, legal commerce uh, federally mm -hmm. uh, in cannabis and had standards apply to um, any of these products uh, because this is 100% preventable um, if these things were available and regulated properly, mm -hmm. there'd be no need for kids to be going to a street corner to purchase uh, black market vape pens with dangerous ingredients. There's other evidence that contaminants in cannabis have caused very serious problems for some people as well, which in rare cases has led to death. There are several case studies available of patients that contracted fatal lung infections, such as a condition called aspergillosis. Aspergillosis is a condition where the spores of certain species of aspergillus fungi get nestled in small little scrapes and crevices in the lungs where they begin to grow, forming a fungal mass called an aspergilloma. This ultimately starts to break down lung function, and it can be fatal. In some fatal aspergillosis cases reported, contaminated cannabis was deemed to be a contributing factor and possibly the sole cause. Now, this is more common in immunocompromised users than regular healthy users, but that just highlights the tragedy here. Many people with serious health conditions are turning to cannabis as a medicine, and those patients are the ones that are most vulnerable to the adverse health effects of consuming contaminated cannabis. So let's review what we've learned so far. There are a lot of different contaminants that can appear in cannabis and cannabis products, such as pesticides, residual solvents, metals, mycotoxins, molds, and bacteria. Metals and molds tend to appear most frequently in cannabis flower. However, metals do sometimes show up in extracts due to leaching from incompatible packaging. Bacteria tend to appear most frequently in cannabis-infused products. 
pesticides, solvents, and mycotoxins are more common in cannabis extracts. And this is typically because the process of making a cannabis concentrate actually concentrates these contaminants. Contamination is not always direct. Sometimes contamination can come from contaminated soil, water, drift from nearby farms or overhead spraying, leaching from manufacturing equipment, or leaching from the packaging that a product's being held in. Contaminants and toxic additives have been responsible for fatalities associated with cannabis consumption. Users with compromised immune systems are the most at risk. By now we seem to be getting a pretty good picture about the safety profile of cannabis, but we're not quite done yet. There's one more issue that we haven't discussed yet, and that's adolescent cannabis use. What unique risks might young cannabis users face? Find out in the third and final part of this series where we finish our curious quest to discover, is cannabis safe? Thanks and take it easy. Special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me for interviews that helped construct not just this episode, but other episodes throughout the season. To check out the citations for this episode, and there are plenty, you can check out the show notes by visiting cacpodcast.com. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on amazon.com and other online book retailers. If you like what we're doing here and want to support the show, please consider supporting us by liking and sharing this episode with your friends and family. You can also choose to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash natural learning enterprises, where you can get access to the full-length guest interviews, behind-the-scenes content, and a lot more. You can also connect with Curious About Cannabis on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Children are obliged to learn the